Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, June 4th, we are studying Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. How should those who are strong in the faith regard and treat those who are weak in the faith? As St. Paul begins to bring this topic to a close, he points our attention to Jesus as our foundation and as our example. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. It's great to be with you today. As we get started this morning, Pastor Hill, give us some context. Paul is wrapping up this part of the argument. He's getting pretty close to the conclusion of his letter. He's, he's finishing out the what you might call the doctrinal portion of the letter. What do we need to know going into this text from Romans 15? Well, going into Romans chapter 15, the first thing we ought to be mindful of is what you've alluded to already. The fact that although there is a chapter break here at Romans 15, really what Paul is doing is continuing on with his line of discourse and argumentation that he started back in chapter 14. Back in chapter 14, we'll remember, Paul discusses the question of how Christians of differing opinions ought to regard one another whenever those differences of opinion end up being over some indifferent matters or minor matters or non-essential issues. And Paul teaches us in chapter 14, essentially, that each group on either side of a, a debate, so to speak, ought not pass judgment upon the other group. Now, he uses in chapter 14 a couple examples. He uses the examples of what types of food a Christian ought to eat and what holidays a Christian ought to observe, calling us back to the Old Testament holidays um, and also the kosher laws of the Old Testament that are so prominent. And in short, in chapter 14, Paul says that those who abstain from certain foods, that they shouldn't judge those who don't abstain from those foods, and those who observe the certain holidays of the Old Testament shouldn't judge those who don't, and vice versa. Instead, he says that everyone ought to be convinced in their own mind of their course of action and those in different matters, and then they should act accordingly out of honor to the Lord. And then what we see in chapter 14 as he continues and develops that thought further is he builds upon that principle of mutual respect of brothers for each other and in different matters. Uh, He builds upon that principle by telling us that we don't only have to act in accordance with our own conscience in these matters, but we also have to add on top of that principle a loving regard for those who are of the opposite opinion. So back in chapter 14, suppose that you find yourself on the quote-unquote right side of things and taking the liberty of eating any kind of food, not abstaining from any of it because you've got the knowledge that all foods are now considered clean and that the kosher laws of the Old Testament have been superseded by Peter's vision. Well, Paul then tells you in that scenario, enjoy that freedom. Don't be constrained. Don't worry one bit in your own conscience about whether you ought to eat those things 
But instead, um, in addition to that freedom being enjoyed full bore all the time, you should also remember that if your brother is there of the other opinion and is scandalized by your eating and drinking, then that you ought to hold back a bit and not enjoy that freedom to its fullness in their presence out of love for them and their own conscience. So love and a regard for the fellow Christian then are added on top of this idea of mutual respect. Um, and that becomes ultimately the deciding factor in how you act in these indifferent and minor and non-essential matters in each situation. So Paul is really laying down Christian love at the end of chapter 14 as being an important factor as we move into chapter 15, where he continues his thoughts. Yeah. You've, you've applied this so far, Pastor Hill, to what you've been calling indifferent matters. I think you use the term minor or non-essential as well. What are these indifferent matters that you're talking about? We like to speak of indifferent matters in the church using a technical term that I imagine a lot of your listeners have heard, but maybe some haven't. That technical term is adiaphora, A-D-I-P-H-O-R-A, and that um, really just uh, links back to this idea of indifference. And what we mean by that is that certain things in the Bible are absolutely laid down to us as matters of good and evil and right and wrong. However, not every topic that one could possibly think up in their mind is one that is treated in such a way by the biblical text. A certain amount of latitude is also given to Christians in how they'll proceed in certain situations. So adiaphora, or indifferent matters, are those that Christians of good conscience can come to different conclusions upon and then still live a life of respect and love towards one another while those differences still exist. Even our Lutheran confessions speak about this idea of adiaphora. The most clear place where adiaphora is defined is for us in uh, Article 10 of the Formula of Concord. And there it says adiaphora are ceremonies or church usages, which are neither commanded nor forbidden in the word of God, but that have been introduced into the church in the interest of good order and the general welfare. There the formula is speaking about adiaphora that reside mainly in church practice, but there are certainly adiaphora in things such as eating and drinking um, as well that exist outside of what the formula is narrowly defining there. So with, with adiaphora then, uh, they're in different matters. They're neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture anywhere, and so there is freedom. So we're not talking, when we say difference of opinion or a different conscience on these matters, we're not talking about things that, say, the commandments deal with, but we are talking about other things where the Scriptures are silent. So as an example from the previous chapter, there is no command in the Scriptures that Christians must worship on Sunday mornings. And so Christians are free to worship on Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Saturday or Wednesday or any day of the week. There is freedom in that. But Paul, as you said, Paul's going to lay out some guidelines as to how to make use of that freedom. And the two guidelines are your own conscience, doing it in faith, he says, and the conscience of your neighbor. How will this affect the conscience of your neighbor? And so that's how we're going to approach Adiaphor as Christians. One one more question, and maybe we'll get into this as we continue the discussion into the text, but I, I can't remember if you put it this way or not. Is there a is there a right 
and a wrong with adiaphora. We've heard Paul talk about weak faith previously. He's going to talk about strong faith in this text. Is there a is there a right or a wrong or maybe there's is there a better way to say that, Pastor Hill? Yes, I think Paul is definitely going to get us into this manner of thinking here in chapter 15. You see he's building up his argument further and further. And here in chapter 15, he is going to give us the impression that even in Adiaphora, I don't know if we would say right and wrong or perhaps maybe good and better or uh, a best manner of looking at things in Adiaphora. He is going to clearly come down and say that, yeah, some practices, although either way is permissible, one is better or one is a higher practice or one is a practice that maybe would result from a more mature Christian faith. So he is going to show that some ways of doing things in the realm of body offer are better than others, but we can't let ourselves because of that um, gradation of practices begin to regard those that have perhaps the uh, less mature outlook on things become the objects of our, our scorn. I think I think the way that you phrased it, that there's good and better, is probably the the best way to think about that, rather than right or wrong. That there are there are practices that are neither commanded nor forbidden. That, and just to to throw out the example that I used, what day do you worship on? Christians typically have chosen to worship on Sunday mornings for the sake of confessing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that worshiping on a different day is wrong? No. Does worshiping on a Sunday better? Well, I mean, we can have that discussion, and that's, I think, the point that Paul would drive us toward when it comes to this matter of adiaphora. What's good, what's better, what's weak, what's strong, and how do we live together as the Christian Church in these indifferent matters? Anything anything more, Pastor Hill, by way of introduction before we jump into the text? Well, it seems like we may be spending a lot of time on introduction. However, there are some important matters here, and there is one last thing that we should definitely say about Adiaphora before we move on. It is, of course, important for us to understand what Adiaphora is and where it applies, but it's equally important for us to understand what Adiaphora is not and when it does not apply. You touched on this a bit earlier, but when we speak of acting in accordance to our conscience and acting in accordance to love and regard for our neighbor, those things have to be formed by the word of God and the bounds that the word of God lays out have to be maintained because if we um, distill everything in life down to the principle of one's own conscience and whatever we might selfishly define as love for neighbor, all kinds of things can result. So we would say those principles um, of determining how to act in a scenario really only apply in that manner when we're talking about things that the scripture does not lay out clearly in black and white in a right and wrong manner. So this would not apply in the realm of morality, uh, in the realm of obeying the commandments, in the realm of doctrinal matters. Those things are clearly settled by God's word and our conscience is captive to them. We are talking about a very narrow application of this principle within the bounds of a Christian community. Very, A very important distinction to make, lest we try to rip this out of its context, and then begin to dismantle things that God has clearly said. That's not the purpose. This is for matters which God has neither commanded nor forbidden. How are we going to live together as a Christian church with differences in weak faith, strong faith? Let's jump into the text. Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, 
we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the text for today, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Pastor Hill, let's start there in verse 1. Paul lays out two groups of people, the strong and the weak. What does he mean by each? The first thing we ought to note here is that Paul is now for the first time in this topic bringing up the term strong as relates to one of these groups and then laying it aside this idea of the weak. In chapter 14, of course, we talked about how those who are weak in their faith might be scandalized by the Christian freedom of others, but he never did quite come out and say that the group that was more open in their approach to things were actually the group called the strong. So he does speak of the strong and the weak here, and what's interesting is he identifies himself among this group of the strong, so to speak, because he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So here he's talking in a value judgment type of way within the realm of Adi Afra, as we alluded to a bit earlier. So here what's being laid out is that if you are strong in the faith, you have an extra obligation placed upon yourself that someone new in the faith or young in the faith, or as Paul would say here, weak in the faith, doesn't necessarily have. Uh, when we think about that, um, we realize that anytime someone has a position of power or authority, it always comes attendant with it the temptation to abuse that power or authority in such a way that someone without it would be hurt. So Paul is first off speaking specifically to the strong here who he identifies with to say, whatever you do, look at the weak and have an extra measure of regard for them and look out not for your own good, but for the good of those others um, who find themselves to not be quite as far along in their faith as you are. I think it's, you know, the, the word there in the um, for English, obligation, in, in the Greek, brings out that picture that we've seen in the letter to the Romans before, the matter of owing someone something. And in the most immediate context to this, it comes up in Romans chapter 13, where Paul, Paul commands Christians, owe no one anything except to love each other. So here we are again with this matter of one group owing something to an, another. So we're going to put it in that terms of love. And I think, I mean, in human perspective, the way Paul frames it seems backwards. Uh, it, I would think that more naturally, the weak would owe something to the strong, maybe their their obedience, their, uh, I don't know, maybe obedience is, is the word I'm looking for, but, but the weak would owe something to the strong, I think is the way that the world would look at this. Paul reverses it and says, no, you who are strong— you owe something to those who are weak. It's the, it's a very backwards way 
of Christian love once again from the way of the world. Absolutely. And it can only be that way because of the life and example of Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate in strength, the ultimate in strength and power in his divine majesty, who comes down to serve us, to love us, to give his very life for ours. And that becomes such a central defining characteristic, not just of the way that Christ does things, but of the way that Christians are to behave, that we do things that are countercultural in the eyes of the world. So just like you said, you would expect that the weak ought to um, either obey the strong or perhaps um, aspire to be like the strong or work harder to become strong themselves. Instead, the onus is placed upon this group of the strong. I really like something that uh, Michael Middendorf, uh, he wrote the CPH Romans commentary says, when he speaks about Paul identifying himself as one of the strong, he says, Paul aligns himself with those who he thereby implies have come to the correct conclusion, but how the strong handle this recognition becomes a true mark of Christian maturity. Yeah, so, so that one of, the, one of those who are strong, in the way that they think about and act toward those who are weak, might actually disqualify themselves from being strong that that in their in their treatment of the weak they actually show just how strong their faith is all the while and even even as i'm saying this i'm struggling with it but all the while recognizing that strong weak strong faith and weak faith those are both faith and and i think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we have this discussion Absolutely. Faith is a gift of God that's given to us by the Holy Spirit through the means that God has uh, prescribed through the preached word and uh, through the waters of holy baptism poured over us and the, the supper delivered into our very mouths. And therefore, when we, we look at faith, we don't quantify it in the way that others might. Uh, faith is present um, in us as a gift. Um, but the manner in which we learn to regard that faith or the manner in which that faith uh, begins to, um, to to move us to a greater level of maturity does naturally differ over time. But the importance is not then to see that your faith is strong because you've been a uh, Christian for, for decades on end and had the benefit of, of times of deep uh, biblical reflection. You don't look at that and say, look at what I've accomplished or look at how strong I've made my faith. Instead, you look at it as an even greater gracious outpouring of God's gifts to you that you then use responsibly for the love and benefit of others. Mm -hmm. So as, as you think about the strong, the weak, as Paul here identifies them, how, how is he defining those two groups based on what we've seen previously in chapter 14? Who are the strong? What do they believe? Who are the weak? What do they believe? This idea of strong and weak, as you're mentioning, might be hard for us to figure out who he's talking about here. And this falls along a familiar division uh, in Romans and within really the entire New Testament canon, because this has to do with the very formation of the Christian church in its earliest years. As we know from the, the book of Acts um, and from the Gospels, many of the first uh, Christians were themselves from a Jewish background, which makes perfect sense for us. Jesus uh, came from the Jews to fulfill the scriptures, which had been handed down uh, to them for the benefit of the world. So therefore, they were the uh, low-hanging fruit, you might say, those people who had been formed already by 
the Old Testament and its prophecies pointing forward to Jesus. So many, many of the very first converts were Jewish in background and outlook. Then, of course, we know Paul especially is called to be an apostle, uh, but an apostle specifically and primarily to the Gentiles. And we see not only through Paul, but through the witness of the others, that a great number of Gentile converts um, are brought to faith by the Spirit. Now, as much as um, we might like to assume that this all went perfectly smoothly at all times, um, we are always simultaneously saint and sinner, and we tend to regard one another according to the flesh, even when we know we shouldn't. And there were at times uh, controversies and strife between these two parties. And what ultimately ends up happening is the way that people would live as a Gentile convert or a Jewish convert often would fall along differing lines regarding the way they would um, practice certain aspects of this new faith. Those who had grown up as Jews and had observed all of the religious festivals of the Old Testament um, were not quick to set those aside. And it is possible, of course, as a, a Christian to um, practice those festivals in a certain way, but they often retained them and looked down upon those new Gentile converts who never practiced those things in the first place and who weren't too eager to take them on as a religious obligation. The same thing is true of the eating of foods. Uh, generally, the Jewish converts had grown up observing the kosher laws of the Old Testament. The Gentile converts never had and were not obligated to. So when you end up talking about the strong, you might think that Paul is talking about the ones who are doing more in their faith, who were abstaining from foods, which is harder, or who were observing festivals, which is harder. But instead, actually, Paul says the strong are the ones who know that those things are no longer obligations um, under the old covenant, and who understand their true freedom in the gospel in these matters of adiaphora. And the weak are the ones who are still viewing those things as as potentially necessary to do um, as regarding their new Christian faith. Mm. Perhaps a good place to look for that distinction is in the previous chapter, chapter 14, verse 14. Paul says of himself, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So there's there's Paul identifying himself as a member of the strong. He didn't name it strong there yet. But he's identifying himself with that group that recognizes that this matter of clean and unclean when it comes to food no longer applies because of what Jesus has said. But he also says in that same verse, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. And so there's there's that example of the weak, those who who still abide by those rules, not, not fully living in that Christian freedom. They're not doing it as the, for example, in the book of Galatians, they're not doing this as the Judaizers might have done, where they're saying, if you don't follow these laws, you aren't a Christian. Rather, the weak are those who are still living in those laws, not fully living in the Christian freedom that they have, but they still they still have this faith, as we've said. So you've got the strong, you've got the weak. Paul says the strong have an obligation to the weak. What is this obligation? What do the strong owe to the weak? Well, the strong owe specifically here in the text to bear with 
the failings of the week. So we might call that uh, forbearance. That's a, a word that we don't often um, use any longer. But when we talk about forbearance, we're, we're talking about the willingness and ability to be patient uh, with a situation that you wouldn't naturally be expected to be patient in or that it wouldn't naturally be um, an easy thing to bear. So they owe forbearance with the weak. And then they also have an obligation to reject selfish motivations here, to reject the easy path, which would be to just climb over the weak in their weakness and to assert themselves at the top of some sort of, of hierarchy in the church. So a, a dual obligation, one to be to be patient, to bear with the failings of the weak. This is I think forbearance is a good word. It's it's a stronger word. This isn't tolerance that Paul's Paul's not just saying, well, just put up with them for now. No, he's he's saying uh, bear with them, hold them up, be patient with them, and then don't uh, don't be selfish. Rather, verse two, he says, "Let us let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up." Throughout this all, the focus of the strong is not upon themselves, but it is upon the needs of the weak. Right, right. And what's interesting too is he uses this language here of a pleasing, right? He says, don't please yourself, but let each of us please his neighbor. Um, we have this phrase, of course, of, of being a people pleaser. And this uh, falls in line with what Paul speaks of otherwise, where he talks about pleasing men rather than pleasing God. But that's not what he's talking about here. Um, instead, what he's saying is within the Christian church, within this a family of, of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, we can either choose to look for our own good or for the good of our brother. And if we follow in the path of Christ, the the choice there is easy, although the execution of it uh, is very difficult. So um, it's important here that what Paul is saying is, as Christians, we look for the pleasure or the good or the, the prospering of others over ourselves. And, you know, Verse two is kind of a complicated sentence. There are a lot of hises in there. If you notice, you said, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Mm. And what he's saying is when we say, say please na his neighbor for his good, it's not for, I don't please my neighbor for my own good, as if I'm getting brownie points with God. I please my own neighbor for my own neighbor's good. Mm. And I build up my own neighbor for his own good and for his own building up. What is so interesting about this way of looking at life is it gets us into an idea of altruism. Altruism is this idea that um, it's a belief in or the practice of being disinterested in yourself and having a selfless concern for the well-being of others. So many people in this world would tell you that altruism is a myth, uh, that everything we do is motivated by some kind of deep-seated selfish desire, even if we've covered it over in our own minds. Um, but it really is only in Christ that true altruism, true regard for others over ourselves can really be found and put into practice. Um, and as we've been incorporated into Christ, it becomes something that can mark our lives too. This this attitude can only be found in Christ Jesus and in those who are in Christ Jesus. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. Going to take a short break, but we will be right back. 
please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Thursday, June 4th. We're looking at Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7 with Pastor Nate Hill. He's the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 2 of Romans 15, and we were talking about the obligation that the strong has to the weak. And I know in my own life, both as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a citizen, when I see someone that I, I disagree with, and I believe that my opinion is the strong one, my first reaction generally at least according to my sinful nature, is not to bear with the other person, is not to think of the other person. My first reaction is to try to convince the other person that I'm right. Now, we're talking here about strong and weak faith. Is there a place, not for that sort of attitude as I described it there, but is there a place for the strong in this matter of bearing with the weak and looking to please the neighbor for their good, is there a place for the strong to bring the weak toward the, the position of strength? Yes, I think that is something that Paul would certainly agree with. I don't know if it's the main thrust of what he's saying here. However, that phrase in verse 2, that we please our neighbor for his good to build him up, may very well be a hint in that direction. So we should have a uh, God-pleasing desire to bring along someone from a weaker faith to a more mature faith. But as you set up this question, you've rightly noticed that sinful nature that we have that above all else wants to, to scream out, but I'm right. <laughs> Haven't you seen that I'm right? Um, and it's very difficult for us to live in that tension of, I suppose, uh, knowing or regarding ourselves as right. Um, and bearing with or having forbearance, as we talked about, for those who we would regard as not quite as right, or to say our position is the best, but theirs is only good. So if we are to um, dare to try and bring someone along, and I think you're right that we should, we have to constantly check our own motivations and our own approaches and ensure that we're not trying to, to scratch our own itch here, um, to make ourselves... Um, deep down inside feel like a champion for persuading someone else. I think the best way to think about this is that if you're going to bring someone in an area of, of Christian practice from something that's maybe not quite as good to something that's better, the way to do it is by modeling it and uh, bringing them alongside of that practice as you live your life as a Christian. I can think about my own views today on um, what I believe to be the best and most fruitful 
devotional and worship practices, for example. And um, my position today is not a position I've always held. Um, but the way that I came around to regarding um, certain ways of worshiping as, as more helpful than others is through practice, through people um, not debating me into it, but from people saying, hey, why don't you come worship with me? Hey, why don't you come and uh, join our family devotion this evening? Hey, we're having uh, an extra devotional service up at the chapel tonight. Don't you want to join us? And that's an entirely different thing than saying, hey, I, I can fix your deficient view on things. Right. I think the, the way you phrased it at the beginning is that this is not the main thrust of this passage. And that is important because our sinful natures would if that were the main thrust of the passage, could potentially lead us way off course. I'm reminded of the interaction that Jesus has with his disciples when James and John come to him and ask for the seats of authority, of power, of prestige on his right and his left. And, And in response to that conversation, the other 10 disciples become indignant with those two. And Jesus comes to all of them and says, look, greatness is not about this. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is about service. It's about putting the other ahead of yourself. And that is the main thrust that Paul has here in Romans 15. And just like Jesus founds that teaching there, and I think it's in Matthew 20 and I think Mark 10, he founds it on himself. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul does the same thing here in Romans 15. He founds this upon the example of Jesus Christ. And that takes us into verse 3. Take us into verse 3, Pastor Hill. Great. And since it was before the break, I'll just uh, reread that for us. Verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We've got two things going on here. Um, first, Paul points to the example of Christ as a proof for why we ought not focus on pleasing ourselves. Um, if it was good enough for Christ uh, to focus on pleasing others, then, then we ought to do the same. Mm. But he does this by introducing the phrase, as it is written. And anytime we come across that in the New Testament, it ought to cause us to go to that little center column in our Bibles. In the Lutheran Study Bible, there the center column between the two columns of text on each page show cross-references, and it lists in those instances where in the Old Testament this quotation would have come from. And in this instance, uh, instance, Paul is quoting a section of Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is one of the most prominent messianic psalms uh, in the entirety of the Psalter. Um, You can read through it and Although it's a psalm of David, you can envision very quickly and easily these words being prayed uh, by Christ himself. It's a psalm that talks about um, a gathering of, of darkness and a gathering of opposition, and it causes us uh, to remember not only the times when David was facing opposition, but to uh, go all the way back to the cross and passion of Christ. So here, when he says the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, he is taking us back to Christ's passion as the example of 
Christ not pleasing himself, um, but doing that which is very hard for the benefit of others. So a really an interesting thing, the way Paul uses this Davidic psalm, putting the words in Jesus' own mouth, so to speak, and extending the meaning of that psalm by doing it. Mm. That, this may be a, a bit of an aside, but that is a, that's an, an interesting and I think a, a helpful way to read through the Psalter is to put the words into the mouth of Christ as he is the one who prays them first for us and and with us. And now those words become our prayer as well. The reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. First, this applies to Christ. And I, I think that the main picture here, that this matter of the obligation of bearing with the weak, of seeking to please the neighbor instead of myself, it takes it even one step further than that. This is a matter of suffering with the neighbor. I mean, that, that's what a reproach is. This is talking about Christ in his suffering, and that in our lives as Christians together, the strong are to suffer with the weak. Yes, yeah. And, and what a small way of doing it compared to what Christ has done mm. in the context of just bearing with differences. Um, you know, Christ was was struck and and beaten and bloodied and ultimately killed, uh, put to death unjustly on a cross. And Paul's just asking us to put up with each other's minor differences here. Mm. I, I think we can handle it. Mm. Um, <laughs> the other the other thing that this reminds me of, though, when you talk about the way that um, we can pray these psalms as if they're the words of of Christ himself. We can also pray these psalms in our own voices, too. And it's a reminder for us when we're under Christian suffering that when we're suffering the reproach or um, some kind of unjust suffering from someone else, you know, people who are lashing out at us in that way really aren't lashing out at us. Uh, they're lashing out at God, at Christ. Um, and I think that's one of the keys to the way that um, the, the martyrs in the church have, have suffered and endured without uh, harboring hatred in their own heart. Uh, for those who caused suffering for them, they recognize that your quarrel isn't with me, your quarrel is with my God. Mm, that's right. Yeah, that, that is a helpful thing to keep in mind. Paul Paul then, as he quotes from Psalm 69 here, in verse 4, he he does take a—I don't know if it's an—it's not quite an aside, but he, he does take a, a moment to speak about this Old Testament that he's just quoted from. And so in verse 4, he says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Take us into what he says there about the Old Testament in verse 4. Yeah, the first half of verse 4 almost sounds like a, uh, a small teaching moment, right? The opportunity for him to teach a, a timeless truth, but it's a truth that uh, we need to be reminded of, that we have been blessed by having the ancient writings of the church, and at the time of Paul, uh, the corpus of what he's referring to here, that written in former times, was what we have uh, today bound up as the Old Testament, the writings of Moses and the prophets and, and the additional writings therein. And he just reminds us that the point of them was to instruct us. Now, I suppose in the old covenant way of viewing things, you might say that it would instruct us uh, in uh, obedience to the commandments, um, or it would instruct us into the way of upright living. And all of that is well and good. But here, I think what Paul is pointing to is the way that the Old Testament scriptures instruct us 
into anticipating and being ready to receive Christ himself. One of the great marvels to me of the spread of the early church is that the early church spread quickly, largely without a New Testament in hand. That um, when the apostles would go from place to place uh, and preach Christ, they would preach on the basis of what had been written in the Old Testament and on their own eyewitness testimony on what Christ himself had done. And to me, that really elevates those Old Testament scriptures and um, Christianizes those Old Testament scriptures, so to speak, in such a way that, that tells me when I read the Old Testament, I ought to be reading for instruction and not just of how God worked in some old and outdated mode, but how he has always had this plan to send Christ our Savior to us. I should expect to see Christ in the Old Testament just as I expect to see him in the New. Hmm. I, I, that's, a, that's a really important point, that the instruction that Paul is talking about here is primarily the Old Testament pointing us to Christ. And, and the Old Testament is a Christian book. You're exactly right. And that, that too, is such a key point. And, and keep in mind how Paul is, is laying this out. He's speaking primarily to the strong here, who, as you identified earlier, are likely going to be a lot of Gentiles, those who, who came into the Christian faith apart from any background of the Old Testament, weren't living according to the civil or ceremonial laws that are there in the Old Testament. And yet he says, look, this Old Testament, these scriptures, they're for you. They are for your instruction to point you to Christ. This is, I mean, yeah, it, it is, it's maybe slightly, I, I don't want to call it a tangent because I don't know if, I don't know if Paul goes on, maybe he does go on tangents. I know I do, but maybe Paul, I don't know. <laughs> But, but it, this, this slight aside is, is such a key point for what the Old Testament is for us as Christians. It is instruction that leads us to Christ, and, and that instruction that leads us to Christ from the Old Testament actually has an effect on our lives right now. I think that takes us into the, the second half of the verse. Paul talks about endurance and encouragement bringing hope. Right, yeah, that second half uh, says we— we have this instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Uh, this idea of Paul pointing to endurance, well, we were talking about forbearance a little bit ago, weren't we? Uh, this idea of patience, and, and these two ideas are, are very closely related. We have to sometimes patiently endure our circumstances, and I imagine it was difficult uh, for the Roman Christians to patiently bear with one another in such items of, of discussion as when you ought to worship and how. We know those are, are hot topics uh, even in the church today. So they, that you have to endure through some of these. You can't immediately um, have all of your circumstances change at once. But he's pointing that instruction from the Old Testament plus this character-building quality of in, endurance that we're called to plus the encouragement of the scriptures, which we need in the midst of endurance, don't we? Because we can't endure uh, anything on our own. It will result in us having hope. Um, and that kind of hope helps us then to endure this voluntary setting aside of our own pleasure, because we have something greater to hope in than just the things of this world. If I have something outside of this world or a ultimate and final um, hope that resides in God's kingdom uh, in heaven, then I can endure just about anything in this world as long as I remain connected to those scriptures and their encouragement um, that he's given for us. Mm -hmm. 
And that endurance, that encouragement that is there in the scriptures is also there in God himself. So Paul keeps with this same language, and he, he turns it now into a prayer in verse 5. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot there to talk about, Pastor Hill. Right. So in in verse four, he's calling us to endurance and encouragement. And in verse five, he immediately moves to the mode of prayer that we would be supplied with it from outside of ourselves from God. Anytime that phrase may comes in, it doesn't mean maybe. It's uh, expressing a, a desire or a wish to God or a prayer, as we would say here. I think um, into this almost introduces some sort of a liturgical type of sound, doesn't it? Um, as if he's invoking either a prayer or a blessing. Ultimately, what Paul's telling us is that if God is the God of endurance and is, is full of that, and if God is the God of encouragement and is full of that, then he can certainly give that endurance and encouragement to you, grant it to you uh, in a way that what is his becomes yours. Hmm. So he, he then prays that the God of endurance and encouragement, and I think just, just briefly, I, I was reading Martin Franzman's commentary in the book of Romans, and he makes the point that Paul's use of endurance and encouragement to describe what the scriptures do, and also to describe what God does, invites us to understand and believe that the one speaking to us in the scriptures is God himself, that the scriptures are God's word. I think that's a, I thought that was an important point to make. Paul prays then to the God of endurance and encouragement. He asks for, for these Roman Christians to live in harmony with one another. That's a That takes us back up, I think, to the whole point that he was making in verses 1 and 2. Right. So now we've got this idea of harmony. Um, and in verse 6, he talks about glorifying God with one voice. And here we have almost uh, the language of, of a choir singing together. Um, is the image that I'm understanding here and getting from this, that in a choir, um, it's no fun if everyone is of the same voice. It doesn't sound very good. Um, you need sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses. And even in an all-men's choir, you need first tenors and second tenors and baritones and basses. You all have to sing in a different register. And as you sing in that different register, it comes together into one thing. And in fact, in a choir, if you are singing a piece and you go back to listen to it on a recording and you can discern your own voice from the collective voice of the choir together, you're doing it wrong. So I think what he's calling us to is saying that although certain differences will endure, um, and whether or not these are differences on what is better or best, or just the differences that life places upon us, differences in our station in life or our background, in the midst of those differences, as we love one another and we bear with one another, it results in something that is beautiful and that glorifies God himself as we, we come together uh, one with another. So this idea of a, a choir seems to me what Paul is evoking here. I, I think that's a, that is a helpful image because the, the language of glorifying God with one voice might seem to stand in a bit of contrast to what he'd said earlier. Look, there's strong and there's weak. Those are 
that's two. And here you're saying one voice. Well, this matter of harmony, a choir, I think is is really helpful. And you've you've got a quote here from Pat, uh, from Martin Franzman that that unanimity, if I said that right, unanimity is necessary, but uniformity is not. What? How? How do you understand that quote? How does that apply to what Paul is saying here? So if I'm understanding Franzman and his context correctly, he's talking about the way that the church comes together to worship and glorify God. And this is not necessarily in the context of, you know, the worship wars or what's right in a practice on Sunday morning with music, but just the fact that our entire life together is something that worships and glorifies God. And he uses these two terms, these two you words, the first being unanimity and uniformity, and contrast them. So let me read that whole quote because it's beautiful. It says, unanimity is essential to the worship of the new people of God. All must put on Christ and live their lives of faith and love and hope together. There is no room for self-centered individualism. It's already become apparent that this unanimity of the members of the church does not mean that all individuality is suppressed. No monotonous uniformity is imposed. So unanimity is when we make a unanimous uh, decision or claim, when we speak with one voice, when we say the same thing, when we confess in that sense, all speaking with one voice of the word of God back to him. Uniformity is something shallow and outward to where we say, not only must we say the same thing, but we must do it in the same clothes and at the same time and in the same place and in a rigid lockstep that exceeds the bounds of, of simply confessing God's truth to him. Mm-hmm. As you were talking there, I, I think the, the way that you described it, not just worship in the sense of what we would do in the church building, but worship in the sense of how our lives confess. I think I mean, this fits perfectly with what Paul has said throughout this section of the letter to the Romans. Back in, in chapter 12, at the beginning of the chapter, he made that pivot, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or as we talked about when we looked at that, your reasonable service, so that the the worship of the Christian is done with the whole life, in, in giving everything that we are, everything that we have, over to the Lord as our, our reasonable service. It's what simply makes sense. In light of what God has done in Christ, this is what makes sense. And there is unanimity in that, because we all do this in response to the one Christ who has done what he has done for us by his grace. Or as, as Paul says there in later in Romans chapter 12, that we are members of this one body, but at the same time, there's not this uniformity. There are different gifts, he says there in chapter 12. And and it's, I mean, it's like those same themes are coming up here in chapter 15, just being applied to this more unique circumstance of how do you deal with adiaphora in the church? Absolutely. One of the things I've realized um, being relatively young in the ministry, I'm still in my first call and have been here for coming up on eight years, which is not a whole career yet, um, as I still have a sense of, of my class from the seminary and where we've all gone and what we're all doing. And it amazes me to see the great variety of places in which my brothers have been called. 
um, and places very different than my own, some in the middle of, of an urban center, some of them overseas, or some working with a registered service organization. And to know in my heart that unanimity that we have, that we all confess together and in our, um, our ordinations and um, in our confession of faith, and then to see the um, beautiful tapestry of how ministry plays itself out in each one of those places, I think is, is a real live example of this unanimity without a rigid uniformity. Mm-hmm. Pastor Hill, we're, we're looking at about four minutes left here on the morning. I want to make sure we get to verse 7, which does function a, a, as a bit of a hinge. It, it builds on what Paul has said in these first six verses of Romans 15, and also moves forward into tomorrow. Tomorrow's text, verses 8 through 13. Help us into verse 7 here. So the final verse, uh, this hinge verse that you mentioned, says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And that's the conclusion of, of this line of argumentation. Paul wraps it up with a big therefore at the end. What does it all culminate in? What is this discussion of what we eat or what we don't eat? Or when we observe festivals and when we don't? And how the weak regard the strong and the strong regard the weak? It all results in this one call that we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. It calls us right back to the beginning of our relationship with Jesus Christ. The way that uh, Jesus Christ himself has welcomed us into his family of faith in the waters of holy baptism. One of the most joyful experiences that I get to have as a pastor is uh, to baptize someone, either an infant or an adult. Um, There's just not really a experience that replaces that in the life of a pastor because we see someone being so joyfully brought in to God's presence and welcomed into this family of faith and given a new identity that uh, will never be taken away from them as a redeemed child of God. And if that welcoming act in which God brings us into the church becomes a uh, defining characteristic for how we deal with one another, Uh, then we'll be a long way towards doing exactly what Paul uh, has been teaching us here in chapter 14 and this first part of 15. So people who realize they have been welcomed will be welcoming themselves. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. Um, So it's always a call for us to remember uh, where we came from. And that causes us uh, to deal with others in forbearance and patience and love who may not quite be to the place uh, that we are in our own Christian life. Pastor Nate Hill is the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Pastor Hill, thank you for your time today. Thank you. God has welcomed us in Christ Jesus, purely by his grace, he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to make us his own, to welcome us into his kingdom. That welcome is the foundation of who we are as Christians, and it is the foundation of our life together as a Christian church. The strong, bearing with the weak, upholding them, looking out for their good, just as Christ has done for us first. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.